I feel like we share that sense of like, as children, shared that sense of there is something wrong with me and nobody understands and something very bad is going to happen, but I also cannot tell anyone about it. Do you like books? I'm outlining a new writing project. Who wrote this book? Read it. Are you read it? Sometimes I'd write something. What are you writing? Have you written anything lately? I'm Amanda Stern, and this is Bookable. On today's show, do you have a secret? Of course you do. We all do. Look, there's something I need to get off my chest. What is it? I haven't told anyone. What secret? Tell me the secret. I will tell you. Our dirty little secret. There are so many reasons we keep things hidden. But sometimes there's a secret inside us that's so big and so overwhelming, it distorts the way we see and move through the world. Well, our guest today, Susan. Oh my God, hi. Oh, wow. Amanda, it's so good to hear your voice. It is so good to hear your voice. She revealed the central shame of her life that had been buried for more than 30 years. Time for an introduction. I'm Susan Burton, and I am the author of the memoir, Empty. Susan Burton. Empty tells the story of the eating disorders uh, that I kept secret for decades, essentially until I wrote this book. If anyone knows how to craft a narrative, it's Susan, who works for the legendary radio show This American Life. In Empty, those narrative skills are on full display as she exposes and investigates the eating disorders she had edited out of her life. Mostly my adolescence and my college years, um, I struggled with anorexia and binge eating disorder. As I was reading Empty, I felt a real kinship with Susan because despite not suffering from an eating disorder, I too kept a childhood secret until I was an adult, an undiagnosed panic disorder. Something was wrong with me, but I didn't know its name. So as a consequence, I developed unhealthy coping strategies, some of which overlapped with Susan's. I write about those in my own book, Little Panic. It's something I really connected with in your book, too. Like, at one point, you you talk about... um, So you pretend to be somebody else, kind of in order Mm -hmm. to keep yourself safe. But then people start believing that you're that person. And then you're like, no, 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 I'm actually not that person. But it feels too late to change or too impossible. But then it's scary that you're not being seen. So it's like you've created this mask so that nobody will see you. But then it's frightening because nobody knows the real you. I just, yeah, really connected with that. Yeah. Oh, good. From Empty, page 103. I ate not when I felt things intensely, but when I didn't. I ate when I felt nothing. I ate when I felt low and then hated myself and I ate more in that hate. If I could just sustain heightened feeling of any kind, would I not have to do this? Not have to eat? Even sort of before a food memory, I remember watching um, Captain Kangaroo 
And there was this little song. It was like, if you can't see very clearly, then you must tell your doctor or your friend or someone you trust. And it showed like this blurry windshield. It, the, like the image on the screen was meant to like reflect, uh, what, what the world would look like to a nearsighted child. And as soon as I saw that image, I was like, oh my God, that's like, that's what I see. That's what I have. Um, Mm. so I was, you know, I was young enough to be watching Captain Kangaroo, which like came on in the morning. Like I must've been an afternoon preschool child actually. Anyway, but I never, I was too scared to ever say that there was something wrong because that might make it true. Mm -hmm. Um, and you know, and I think that like, I got my period when I was 10 um, and, you know, I had everything that went along with it when I was 10. I had hips and breasts and a waist and, um, and other things too that, uh, that aren't often mentioned in the same sentence, but I, you know, I had discharge. I had Mm -hmm. like, I had womanly things happening to my 10 year old body and, and these things fit immediately into that category of things that are wrong with me that I can't tell anyone about. And they were also things I wanted to get rid of. And, you know, the path from that to the eating disorder um, is is a pretty straight arrow. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting. It really... It really struck me when you mentioned how old you were when you got your period. And um, I just... I would have been so alarmed, you know? It's just so young to have something so adult happen. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, it it reminded me a bit about uh, when your mom said, uh, I might butcher it, but she said something like, I think you should ask yourself why you're trying so hard to be a child again. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's really struck me because when you were a child, you were preoccupied with rather teenage concerns about food, not to mention you got your period at age 10, all of which is to say that when you were a child, you were burdened by adult concerns. But when you think back to that comment now, how does it strike you? I mean, a couple things. Like, I was a little girl who felt just completely at home in that identity as a little girl. Um, Like, I loved Annie. I loved Shirley Temple. um, I loved, you know, the Kids' Choice Awards at the public library. Like, I was a little girl. So to be kind of jolted out of that at 10 um, and have my body saying that I was somebody other than a little girl um, was was traumatic. and I think, you know, when when my mother made that comment, both in the moment, so my mother that my mother made that comment when I was fifteen and uh, anorexic for the first time, and um, both in that moment and now, I knew it had something to do with wanting to restore the world of my childhood, which meant uh, my parents still married, um, living in like the perfect black shuttered house on the hill, um, even though <laughs> the life in that house had been far from perfect. Um, I think that uh, that those were those were some of the things those yeah that that I wanted to return to that life too. 
Mm-hmm. But but I also think but but even what you said about being um, a little girl who was burdened by adult concerns, I do think that those adult concerns um, included uh, my parents' pretty troubled marriage. You know, that was like among the things that I hid, among the things that same as with my body, um, I could never tell anybody that um, that I was clearly about to have a heart attack. Um, I also could never tell anybody. Um, about the things that went on at home, but it wasn't like I had to decide not to tell. It was just so clear to me that those were things I would never say. From Empty, page 26. You're disgusting. You disgust me. The words were unsettling in their cruelty, but in their mystery too. What disgusted my father? Was it something about my mother's personality? Her shyness or hesitance? Some character weakness you could point to? Or the other possibility? My father was disgusted by my mother's body, and he had told her so. There were moments in the book that you mentioned that your father had issues with rage, and mm-hmm. and that you overheard him telling your mother that she was disgusting. And immediately, mm-hmm. the way that your brain worked was that you wondered if he was disgusted by her body. And that reflex to go straight to the body seemed automatic for you. And I was wondering what the body represented to you at that time as a child. So yeah, so what happened was my, uh, I had a friend sleeping over. I was in eighth grade. I was 13. Um, and we woke up early in, in our, or I woke up early in, uh, on the floor of my bedroom in my sleeping bag next to my friend in her sleeping bag. And I heard, um, you know, it's when, when people talk about their parents, they say my parents fighting, but, but that isn't actually the phrase, uh, that applied. You know, I heard my father berating my mother in, in their bedroom across the hall. And, you know, part of me was worried that my friend was hearing too, but, but part of me was just so attuned to this, uh, electric thing that was happening across the hall that, uh, you know, brought up so provoked so much for me. Um, it was it was like a primal experience. It was such a familiar experience, and and I overheard. I couldn't hear a lot of specific phrases until I heard my father say to my mother, "You were disgusting. You disgust me." And then he left the room and he went downstairs, and I could tell he was in his running clothes. I heard like the swish of like his running pants, and he went out the front door, and. In that moment, my head went immediately to, okay, if my father thinks my mother is disgusting, he thinks, uh, and you know, it wasn't even like her body is disgusting. Like I went directly to the part I thought he found disgusting, which mm-hmm. was um, her stomach, um, which which she was self-conscious of. And, you know, thinking about that now, I mean, it's just, it's no surprise to me that, uh you know, both that I uh, developed an eating disorder and that the stomach, the abdomen, would also be my fixation um, for decades. And to be perfectly honest, if if there's one part of my body that I still um, struggle to have compassion for, it, it, it would be my stomach. Um, but, you know, I also think something significant about that scene is that my father was going running. You know, he was... Uh, he was doing this thing that could undo the stomach or, or purify. There, there's something, um, I think, significant about that, too. Um, you know, 
did I in that moment think that my mother needed to change or be different so that my father wouldn't find her disgusting? No, not at all. I mean, I thought it was incredibly cruel and disturbing, and I was unsettled by it, and I wished I could unhear it. Um, but did it sink in, into me? Uh, yes. For a short break. When we come back, Susan faces another daunting challenge, revealing her disorders to the love of her life. Stick around. I'm Amanda Stern, here with Susan Burton, author of Empty. You know, you you write a lot about, and I really connected to this, about intimacy and closeness with people and your friends and wanting to be, you know, the one who was the most important or the best or the closest. And I was hoping that you could talk a little bit about how food provided the sense of connection or of intimacy that you wanted to feel. I think what food did is it, um, it, it it was a balm for that intimacy or connection I didn't feel. So, so what I mean by that, like to use an example, so I had this best friend in high school, Jules. Actually, it's uh, it feels um, like hubris to even um, call her my best friend because she had a real <laughs> best friend, <laughs> Eden. And uh, but I was Jules's best friend senior year, and. Um, I wanted, I always wanted like this just complete communion of souls with her. Um, and I always felt like I wanted her more than she wanted me. And I often left um, interactions with her feeling um, bereft. So, uh, so for example, you know, we could be at school one day and um, I could walk her to class and instead of, you know, asking me something about what's going on with my life, she could be talking about, uh, you know, the, the guy who was really into her. I could leave that interaction and it's, you know, it's, it's innocuous, it's nothing, but, um, but I would leave school and I would go home and, uh, and I would binge. And in my head, it wasn't connected to whatever mm-hmm. interaction I just had, but it made me feel something else other than the lack of that intimacy or connection I craved. When I was binging, um, there was only that. As long as there was food in my mouth, I didn't have to think. I didn't have to think about any loss or pain or longing. And then as soon as I was done, um, you know, I felt a lot of feelings. I felt I felt self-loathing. Um, I felt fear about, you know, having to get through the rest of the day. But those were familiar feelings. This was like a cycle I knew. Um, and I still didn't have to think about uh, kind of the disconnection or intimacy. So it wasn't like, it wasn't like food. Um, it wasn't like I went to it for comfort although although you know reflecting on it like certainly that was part of it but it was more there was more sort of like rage and aggression in um 
And the act of binging, I think, I think because of the rage and aggression <laughs> that like the, the kind of tearing around the kitchen, uh, the ferocity of it, I think that's why it's hard for me to, uh, to, to square those feelings with, um, with the notion of comfort. Um, I, you know, while you were talking, it sort of something struck me that it didn't strike me in the book because I wasn't listening to you talk about it. And um, what struck me, and it could be nothing, is that, you know, in friendship, it's a, it's um, between two people and, you know, you are often um, waiting for something or hoping for something that, you know, didn't come or you didn't feel, even if it did come, you probably couldn't feel the, the strength of it, which was wanting to be the, the best, the most, you know, the closest. But with food, it's a one-sided relationship in a way. You know, you're not, there's, it's just you, you have all the power and you're, you know, you can just sort of, you're, there's no expectation of closeness from food. You know what I mean? Yes. No, I think this is so true. And this is something, um, that I talk about in therapy a lot. Um, oh. like, like food, food is a one person solution, right? And the, yeah. the relationship with the other is the two person solution. And I relied for years on that one person solution. Even the act of writing the book, um, is in a way, uh, a one person solution. Um, you know, once the book goes out into the world and I'm talking to other people about it, it's very different. Um, but, but the years spent, uh, alone with the book, writing the book itself, that's like, that's very one person too. Right. And yet it's still a relationship. You know, it's just... Right. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Yes. Except it's not a relationship with a human. <laughs> right. Which is maybe part of why it felt shameful was because you were living out a relationship that no one else but you could really see or understand, even if you didn't understand it. Yeah. No, I do think that's true. And there's shame in... Um, you know, there's there's shame in the binging itself, but then there's shame in wanting to do it. Um, and and part of that shame, I think you're right, the shame is wanting that instead of another human or being better at that relationship than you are with a human relationship mm -hmm. or feeling that that's the case, even if that's, you know, even if that's not true. From Empty, page 271. Eating disorders are so profoundly a coping mechanism for failures in human relationships that to get over one, it's essential to strengthen the capacity to relate to another, which is a lot of what happens in therapy. Underneath my desire to tell was a desire to connect. Maybe the most important thing writing did was get me to start talking. My husband and I met when we were 17. You know, we met like in the dining hall freshman year and we started dating when we were 20. Um, and I didn't tell him about the binge eating, which which was my big secret, um, until we were 45. Um, I'd finished the manuscript. Um, one evening, you know, we sat down together at the dining room table and I just, I was like, this is the moment I'm going to tell him. And, you know, it wasn't that he, you know, it was, it was no surprise to him that, uh, that 
it was a food secret, like um, issues around um, control and anxiety in relation to food um, had had been, you know, very present um, throughout the the decades we were together. But but the the binge eating itself. Um, you know, I, I was so scared to tell him because if he were to come to me and say, I have this, this secret to tell you, you know, that I've kept from you for 25 years, like I would have a range of very complicated feelings. Um, but he, you know, the, the, the night it happened, like it was, it was sort of like he didn't understand what binge eating was, you know, like I told him, I was like, so this memoir I've been writing, the, 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 there's this secret part of it and it's about binge eating. And he's like, I, I knew about that. And I was like, no, honey, no, you didn't. You didn't, he didn't, he didn't understand what binge eating was. And, and so, so I sort of had to explain it to him. And then he read the manuscript and that was it, the process of him learning the secret um, and me being able to talk about it has been incredibly transformative. Um, it, it sounds like a cliche, but, um, but saying the thing that I thought could never be said, um, has just allowed us to say so much more to me, to him and him to me too. There's, there's like a new openness and vulnerability, um, and a real newness, um, which, which has been amazing and invigorating. And, you know, for, for me, for somebody who, like we talked about earlier, had the one person solution, the, the turning to two, um, it's, uh, it's just an incredible sort of like rebuilding my faith in, uh, human relationships, uh, to, to have said this thing that I was so scared to say, um, and to like deepen, um, our, our love for each other and our understanding for each other. So yes, that's been uh, a really wonderful part of it is sharing this with him. That's amazing. Yeah. It's, it's incredible to me how confessing is, you know, I mean, as a Jew, it feels weird to say, like, confession's the best. But, <laughs> you know, it is such a monumental part of, of healing and facing the thing that has shaped your entire life. It's true. And, and sort of, and, and understanding why it was a secret in the first place, you know what I mean? So it's like, there's like the unburdening, but then it was like, okay, so why did I feel the need to keep that a secret in the first place? And I, I think that is, that is the next piece of it for me. And, and that is the piece that feels more kind of like deeply transformative than, uh, than just saying it, than just telling Susan Burton, author of Empty. It's published by Random House and is available now. Bookable is a production of Loud Tree Media. I'm your host, Amanda Stern, five feet tall and hiding one last secret. At the doctor's office, when they measure my height, I force them to round up. We're produced by me, Bo Friedlander, and Andrew Dunn, who also mixed and sound designed the show. Bo is Loud Tree's editor-in-chief. Find us on the web at bookablepod.com. And please subscribe and rate us five stars on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. That's one of the best ways for other listeners to find Bookable. And there's a ton of great stuff on our Instagram. That's at bookablepod. And you can also follow me at a little stern. Despite never having met, Susan and I really get each other from our heads to our feet. 
I was swimming yesterday and I cut the bottom of my foot on a shell. Oof. And in the middle of the night, it was really hurting me. And I was like, I know I have flesh eating bacteria. Oh, I can't no. believe this. And then I was like, I bet Amanda will understand. A hundred percent. This is causing me. It's so fun. Um, yep. We are. Uh, yeah. That is pretty much 99% of my day. This is bookable.